0: Welcome to the Teaching Ministry of Calvary PSL. Please join our Care and Assimilation Pastor Andrew Webb for the message. So much more. Romans chapter five, we'll be in today. Romans chapter five, verses one through eleven. So hey, as you guys are flipping there, pop quiz for you. What do these three things have in common? The George Foreman grill. OxiClean, and the Snuggie. What do these three things have in common? I heard it. It is an infomercial that they have in common. Infomercials. We have all seen infomercials, and we have all been very bored by them. But what is the forward phrase that we hear with every infomercial? But wait, there's more. Uh. If you order in the next five minutes, we're going to throw in an extra George Foreman grill for free. But wait, there's more. And it's salesy and cheesy and all of that. But as we come to Romans 5, we see that Paul is telling us there's more. There is more. You see, in our world today, there's this notion of compartmentalized Christianity, that sort of nominal Christianity that says it's just a part of my life. It's not all of my life, but we see that Paul and we see the Lord telling us, no, it's it's a whole life thing. It's comprehensive Christianity instead of compartmentalized Christianity. But wait, there's more so our main point for today is this. We have been justified. As followers of Jesus, we have been justified, and that changes everything. Now, this affects the kind of friend you are, the kind of parent you are, the kind of spouse, the kind of employee. This affects everything. There's so much more mindset. Again, we're not about compartmentalized Christianity. We are about comprehensive Christianity. It is all of me. There's so much more. So if you're there with me in Romans chapter 5, say I'm there. All right, let's pray. God, thank you for this time. You are so good. You are so holy. You are so righteous. And we get to come before you. We just got to sing. We get to sing praises to you and worship you. God, this is our testimony. By Jesus Christ the righteous, I'm justified. Wow. So God, we praise you. And we just continue to worship you during this time. God, when your word is open, you are speaking to us. So we open up your word that is living and active that are sharper than any double-edged sword. And we say, God, would you speak? So Holy Spirit, would you illuminate your word to us today? We give this time to you and to you alone. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, so a little bit of background here on Romans because we're coming smack in the middle, partway through of this incredible book. Well, Romans is this nice, incredible steak Dinner, right, you just can't help but savor it and enjoy it and appreciate it. You don't need a steak fast. You enjoy every single bite, and Romans is like that. It's not exhaustive in its theology, meaning it doesn't cover every point that there is to theology, but it covers a great deal of theological topics. But here's what I love about Romans. It's not all just a bunch of head knowledge. Is what do we always say here. It goes from your head to your heart to your feet. There's so much in Romans that is so applicable to us about living out the gospel. Because we see that orthodoxy, right belief, leads to orthopraxy, right living. Orthodoxy orthopraxy, right living. So, so applicable, so important, this beautiful steak dinner, and we're gonna get to savor a couple bites of it this morning. And Paul's purpose for writing the book of Romans, well, he's writing it to the church of Rome. He hasn't been there before, and he's saying, hey, I'm really excited. I'm gonna be coming your way, and I'm gonna speak into in this book of Romans some things pertaining to your church body in particular. And a big theme of Romans is the saving righteousness of God that God's righteousness is what saves. You and I couldn't do anything to earn it or deserve it. We have fallen short, and God has saved us and made us righteous. It is a beautiful, beautiful book. And so Romans 1, just a little snippet here leading up to our context. Romans 1, verses 16 and 17, maybe you've heard this. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. We're not ashamed of that gospel, are we, church? Continuing on on in Romans. Look at Romans chapter 323 and 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We are justified by his grace. We didn't earn it, we didn't deserve it. We're gonna unpack what justification means. Because in chapter four, Paul talks about our friend Abraham, who we know from Genesis, and Abraham had believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Didn't earn it, didn't deserve it. So Paul writes, but the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. All right, so what is justification? Well, when Paul uses this word justification, he's ushering us into a courtroom setting, where we stand before the judge, and this judge is God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and he looks on us and he declares us righteous. You see, when Jesus died on the cross for your sins and for mine, and he rose from the grave, defeating sin, death in the grave, when we believe in him, when God looks at us, he doesn't see our own righteousness, no way, he sees the righteousness of his son. And that is righteousness, his sinless perfection. So when God sees you and me, the judge sees us, he bangs the gavel, he signs the document, he sets in stone, this, my child, is righteous. You have been justified. And that changes everything. So let's unpack this. Verse one, check out Romans chapter five, verse one with me. Therefore, Since we have been justified by faith, that's pointing back to what we just talked about in context, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of justification, we have peace with God. Because of justification, you and I have relational rest with the God of the universe. Oh. So this idea of, of peace. Now, New Testament's written in Greek, but Paul, Hebrew background, new is, new is Hebrew, and when, when they talk about peace, this Hebrew word for it is shalom. It's rest. Everything's complete. Nothing else is needed. The circle has been completed. We're at rest, relational rest with God. It makes me think back to the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, Or they, before the fall, had this incredible just relationship with God. They got to enjoy fellowship with him. How sweet. And Paul is saying, we have peace with God. Because of justification, we have relational rest with God. Now, it makes sense, too, to say, if we have peace with God, we also have peace from God. And so Philippians 4 talks about this. Don't be anxious about anything, But in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, present your request to God and the peace which surpasses what, church? All understanding will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. In the midst of this crazy year where mental health issues are at an all-time high and struggles, where anxiety and fear are at an all-time high and stress, How are we doing as a church in resting in that peace that surpasses all understanding? How are we doing showing the world, again, in the midst of the anxiety and the stress and the worry and the fear that my God is a God of peace and I have peace with God and therefore I have peace from God? These struggles are real, anxiety, stress, mental health struggles are real and it is Hard and we engage though with the God who gives us peace beyond all understanding. You've been justified, and that changes everything. You may have seen one of these bumper stickers too as you've been driving down the road. No God, no peace. No God, no peace. If you happen to be listening on a podcast three years from now, uh, that's N O God, no God, no peace, and K N O W, no God, no peace. We get that peace from God, our Savior, surpasses all understanding. So how are you doing with peace in your life? Paul continues on, verse two. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Let's pause right there. Through him, get through Jesus, through him alone. We're not earning it, we're not deserving it. Through him, we have obtained access this idea of access, it's like the idea of a, a, a key card or a fob or a car key. We've all got them. You've all got some kind of key on you right now at this moment, and it gives you access into something that not everybody has. And when Jesus did what he did for us, he gave us that key card. And through faith, we were able to walk into the presence of God. Because when Jesus died, what happened? The curtain of the temple was torn in two. We got access into the holy of holies, into the presence of God. So through him, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. Grace. Now, what is grace? There's two words that we like to use to define grace. Help me out, church. Grace is God's unmerited favor. Let's unpack that for a second. So unmerited, we didn't do anything to earn it. We didn't do anything to deserve it was unmerited. And for some of us, maybe I've been walking with the Lord for a little bit, we need to have a reality check. We tell ourselves, man, I'm, I'm a good person. I come to church every weekend. I go to my Calvary group. I serve in the kids' ministry. I am a good person. You know what, God owed me. I earned this, I did him a favor. Those other people, oh, bless their heart. We all know what bless your heart means, right? Bless their heart. But me, I got it all together. And yet we look at this passage and we say no. Through him, we have attained access by faith into this grace, unmerited favor. Let's talk about favor. What is God's favor? He likes you. He loves you. Do you know his word says that he rejoices and dances over you with singing. He loves you so much. And the lie that some of us start thinking right about now is that's great for everybody else, but that doesn't apply to me. You don't know what I've done. You don't know what I've been through. You don't know what's been done to me. And God says, no, it applies to you, you, you. You have God's unmerited Favor, he favors you, church. He loves you. We have access into his grace. Paul goes on to say, we stand in it, standing. It's confidence. That's certainty. As sure as I am that there's a podium right here, as sure as I am that I'm standing here, that I have a pulse. I am sure that I stand in his grace. That I have access to his unmerited favor. We have been justified, and that changes everything. Sometimes I wonder, though, if we treat grace less like a gift and more like a loan. You see, when grace is a gift, we bask in it. We enjoy it. We realize, God, I can't even begin to pay you back. It was unearned. There's freedom in that. But when we treat grace more like a loan, it's overwhelming. It's burdensome. I have to pay God back? With interest, there's such fear, it's so heavy. And yet this notion of paying God back, treating grace like a loan, is like a child breaking open his piggy bank, trying to pay his parents back for their home mortgage. It's absurd. Grace, you have it, is unmerited favor. What else do we have because of justification? Well, Paul goes on, second part of verse two, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Third point for us today, because of justification, we have hope in the future. Because of justification, we can get excited, we can get on the edge of our seats, we can be pumped up for what is to come. We rejoice, this word for rejoice, some of your translations might say boasting. It's this confidence, this is common. I'm excited. How excited do we get? Those of you that like football, when when your team scores a winning touchdown the final seconds of the game and you jump off your couch and you're so excited, you rejoice. Do we rejoice like that for hope in the future and what's to come? Now we rejoice in hope, This hope, as we know from Pastor Mike, he said it up here, that this hope is not a hope so hope. It's a what, church? No so hope. What are we hoping in? We are hoping in the glory of God. Think with me of the most beautiful setting in nature that you have ever witnessed. Just think about it for a second. I I think of something like this. It's beautiful, gorgeous. Love it. Splendor, majesty, beauty, radiance. Times that by a million, you might get close to understanding the glory of God. All creation screams out about his glory and points to him, our God is glorious. Majestic, radiance, splendor, beauty. He's glorious. And so when Paul says that we rejoice in hope of the glory of God, well, what does that mean? That means we're rejoicing in hope that he is coming back. He is returning for us in that glory. So Matthew 25, Jesus says the son of man will be returning in glory. Do we think about that? He's coming back for us, church. He's coming back for you. This isn't all there is to life. And there's this lie that we can buy that it's just about my life now and then I die and then it's done and whatever and Jesus came for me so I can live my best life now. There's so much more to it, right? Do we realize, do we marinate and meditate on the fact that Jesus is coming back for his bride, the church, and there'll be no more tears there will be no more pain. There will be no more sorrow. We will all be made right with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Amen. So, how is your future reality affecting how you view your present circumstances? Knowing what's to come affects today. We have been justified and it changes everything. Continue on though with me in verse three. Not only that, not only that, that excitement we just had about the future, not only that, but wait, there's more, but we rejoice in our suffering. Rejoice in our suffering. Paul, what are you talking about? I wanna stay as far away from suffering as possible. No, we rejoice, remember that boastful confidence in our suffering. There is a 99.9999% chance that all of us in this room are in one of three places. You are either going into suffering, you either are suffering, or you're coming out of suffering. We can't escape suffering. But what makes us different as followers of Jesus is we know that God is not going to waste anything. There's a purpose in the pain. There's a mission in the midst of our mess. God wants to use it. And so for us as believers, it makes me think about James chapter one, three through four. And it says this, we counted all joy, my brothers, when we meet trials of various kinds, For you know that the testing of your faith, that's what these trials are, right? They're testing of your faith. It produces steadfastness or endurance and let steadfastness have its full effect. Do you see that? Let steadfastness, allow it to have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You see, there's this concept of allowing and letting it come in. Just because you suffer doesn't mean that all these other things are gonna come along with it. Go to anybody out in the world, any random person, just because they're going through something does not mean it's gonna produce these things. You see, the soil of our heart needs to be cultivated, needs to be prepared, needs to be ready, so that way when God provides that seed of suffering into the soil of our heart, it's able to grow and produce and cultivate. God wastes nothing. So I want you to think about your suffering. What are you going through? Think about it right now. Let's put it through this process. So we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces, verse three, endurance. What is endurance? Endurance is that ability to keep going on, to keep pushing forward, to not give up. How many of you ran in the CCA 5K? How many ran it? Nice. How many of you finished it? Way to go. You guys had endurance, right? You kept going. You walked or you ran to that finish line and you didn't give up. That is endurance, the ability to keep going. Paul puts it this way later on in 1 Corinthians. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. What an incredible promise, by the way but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. There's that word endurance, not give up. So when we go through suffering, suffering produces, it grows in the soil of our hearts, endurance, and endurance produces character. Talk about character. Character is that refining fire that we go through, that God is after changing your heart. Not just the external, but the internal. It's the difference between a new recruit and a seasoned veteran. Character. God is shaping something in you. And if this sounds familiar, it's because it is, because we went through it several weeks ago, 1 Peter chapter 1, and Peter has this to say: and this you rejoice. Though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You notice that, so that, been grieved by various trials, so that, in order to, it's a purpose statement. There's a purpose to the pain. God wants to use what you're going through. We talked about that refining fire several weeks ago in 1 Peter, right? That God is doing something in you and then that gold comes out and you can see his face reflecting off of you. We're talking about character. God is doing something in you. Now, Paul says next, so we've, we, we had suffering that produces endurance, and endurance that produces character. At the end of verse four, character produces hope. There's that word again, hope. So you tell me I rejoice in hope of the glory of God and now I can rejoice in my sufferings because they also bring that same hope. And so we can anchor into hope for two reasons. We're gonna see in verses five and following, two reasons that we can anchor into hope, experiential and historical. So look with me in verse five, it says, hope does not put us to shame. It does not disappoint us. That's, that's super important because there are things in our life that will disappoint us, that will let us down. See, when Christ is on the throne of our hearts and we hope in him, it's not gonna let us down, church. But when we put our hope in other things, it might be good things. Family, friends, our job, all these, these are good things. But when we put them on the throne of our heart as the ultimate hope, they will disappoint us. They will put us to shame. They will let us down. But this hope does not Put us to shame. Why? Look within verse five. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts. Through the Holy Spirit has been given to us. So number one reason we can anchor into hope experiential. God's love has been poured into you. Romans has been said to be a lot about head knowledge. It's for those stuffy theologians, you know, who just read all day and it's a head knowledge. But here we see in Romans anything but. This is experiential. God's love has been poured into our hearts. It's like this overflowing water. And then it, you just can't help but pour out because it's overflowing from you. You can't give back, help but give back love to God and love God. To others. It's an overflowing, abundant love. Are you experiencing that love? How great the love the Father has lavished on us that you and I should be called children of God. And that is what we are. This isn't a trickle, this isn't a sprinkle. God is not stingy with his love. So in the midst of our suffering that points us to hope, we can be confident in hope because God has poured his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, verse five says, that has been given to us. We can hang our hat on hope because of what we've experienced. God loves you, church. Do we meditate, do we marinate on that love? But then he goes on to say this in verse six, for while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For while we were still living our best life, while we had it all together, while we were living like we live on our Facebook and Instagram, you know, all perfect and everything right. Now, while we were still weak, At the right time, God was in charge. God was in control. He knew the story he was writing. We didn't. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He continues on. I want to encourage you to dial into this. This is verse seven. This is Paul really reaching for language. You ever really just want to convey something so much to somebody that you're just like, oh, how do I say this? Words can't comprehend. This is what Paul is doing here. He's looking to illustrate, he's looking to double click, to underscore, to highlight the fact that Jesus died for us at our worst. So look here with me. Verse seven, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person. So a righteous person, somebody who, in this case, what Paul is saying is somebody who outwardly was doing the right thing. One will scarcely die for a righteous person. And then he goes on in verse seven to say, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. A good person, somebody who was good inside and out, who, who, who did the right thing, was a good person, genuine person, righteous person, good person. Somebody might take a bullet for them. Paul's making this contrast, though, because what's the next word that we see in verse eight? But, but God shows his love for us and that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. We can anchor into hope for two reasons what we've experienced, and historically, what Jesus did for us 2,000 years ago. So, when you go through your sufferings, you can bet the farm that your hope is something that you can have confidence in. While we were at our worst church, not our best, while we we're at our worst, Christ died for us. So follow Paul's flow of thought with me. Suffering, the stuff you're going through, there's a 99.999% chance you're going through it, all right? Suffering you're going through, it's producing endurance. Don't give up. It's producing character. is producing hope. And we can come to the bank. We can be certain, we can be positive about hope because God's poured his love into you and because he died for you at your worst. So what are you going through? What are you going through today? Maybe you're a single mom and everything that's going on, kids and work and finances, it's so hard and you just feel overwhelmed. Don't give up. God's doing something in you and you can hope in what is to come. Three words, church, God wastes nothing. Do you believe that? Maybe you were in the doctor's office recently and you heard that one word, that one word that nobody ever wants to hear, cancer. And now as you look ahead to chemo and radiation, you just feel overwhelmed like your life is falling apart. We look at Paul's word in Romans five and we see God wants to use this to give you endurance and character and hope. You can hope in what is to come. Why? Because God has poured his love into you and because he died for you at your worst, you can have hope in your suffering. Did you notice church, it says God shows his love for you. This is present tense ongoing. So what are you going through? Makes you think about, you know, when we go through suffering, it's like being given this piece of broken glass. And are just like, what, what, what do I do with this? It's ugly, it's gross, it's pointless. What do I do with this? And yet, as we step back and we see the pieces of our brokenness and our pain and our sufferings come together and we let God's light shine onto it, we see that he is making a beautiful masterpiece out of our mess. He's bringing such beauty out of our brokenness. Let him take that suffering and make something beautiful, church, because you have been justified and that changes everything. Paul continues on in verse nine, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. What do we have because of justification? Because of justification, we have restored relationship with God. You are a friend of God as a follower of Jesus. God is your father. You have restored relationship with him. And it's important that we unpack this phrase. We've been justified by his blood. Did you see that in verse 9? We've been justified by his blood. And it takes us back to the book of Exodus where the Israelite people, they were in bondage in Egypt. And what does God do? Bring them out. He sends 10 plagues. And what was that 10th plague? Death of the firstborn. And so to bypass that plague, to be spared from that, God asks his people to kill a lamb, spotless, without blemish, put the blood over the doorposts and the angel of death would pass over it. Now fast forward to John chapter one and John the Baptist sees Jesus and he says, Behold the lamb of God, our Passover lamb, who takes away the sin of the world. First Peter puts it this way. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Isn't it really cool you can see First Peter everywhere? too. when you go through God's word, you start seeing it everywhere. Oh, God's been so good through First Peter, hasn't he? So this is our lamb without blemish or spot. So when we come to know Jesus, we are saying, I'm putting your blood on the doorposts of my heart. You took on your own wrath for me. I'm putting your blood on the doorposts of my heart. as my Passover lamb. You took on that judgment, and now I have been justified. Now I am a friend of you. This is really important to get as we continue into verse nine, because then it says, if we've been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Again, here's Paul stretching for a language to underscore the point. If he did all this for you while you were a sinner, at your worst, 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 think of all he's gonna continue to do for you now that you're a friend of God, now that you're a part of the family of God. So let's be real about wrath. As we've been saved from the wrath of God. A loving God is a just God. And a just God has wrath. You can't tease out God's love from his sense of justice and need for wrath. What is wrath? It is his anger against sin. And so God, who is loving and just, took on that wrath for us at the cross, And again, it's that blood on the doorpost he passes over. The very God who has wrath took on his own wrath. Is that beautiful or what? But for those who don't put that blood on the doorpost of their heart, what happens? They have to face God's wrath for eternity. It's a loving God, it's a just God. And a just God has to deal with that wrath. And so Paul, again, is highlighting, underscoring, double-clicking the fact that if we've been justified with him, Man, God has so much more in store for us. Ephesians 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. There's so much more is what Paul is telling us. Verse 10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life this reconciliation, this language of friendship, of restoration, God is our father. We are a friend of God. How do you see your relationship with God? Do you see him as a friend, as a father? Or do you see him as a foe? And so much for us in this Christian walk is unlearning the lies that we bought in the past. God couldn't love me. He doesn't care about me. I don't have a seat at the table of the family of God. I gotta sit somewhere else. We're like the prodigal son in Luke 15 that he's gonna come home to his father. But his plan is, father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, I'm no longer worthy to be your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And what happens in Luke 15 when that takes place? The father runs to him, throws his arms around him. The son tries to get it out and the father says, be quiet, put the robe on, his, on him, put the sandals on his feet, get the ring on his finger, kill the fattened calf. This is my child. That is how God feels about you. And so when we buy the lie in the past and when we try to unlearn these lies as followers of Jesus, we gotta remind ourselves When I think something different than God's word about me, when I say this, but God's word says that, who has to change? I do. And God slowly but surely, Romans 12, one and two, he's gonna continue to transform us by the renewing of our minds step by step to get us more in line with how he sees us. You are a friend of God, church. You are a friend of God. So you have been justified and that changes Everything, last verse, verse 11, more than that. But wait, there's more. We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. We're rejoicing, we are reconciled, we are children of God. There is so much more. God has banged the gavel, declared you justified and look what is to come, what he has given us. So to recap our points for today, Because we've been justified, we have peace with God, we have that shalom, we have that relational rest, we have grace to stand in. You have access before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, he's given you that key card and you are before him, the temple curtain has been torn in two. You have hope in the future and all that he's gonna do, he's coming back and we have hope in the midst of our sufferings. Don't forget, he wastes nothing. And we have restored relationship with God. You are a friend of God. He loves you. You've been justified, and everything has changed. Now, when we look at this passage, Romans 5, one through 11, here's one thing I think we can all agree on. There can't be any such thing as compartmentalized Christianity. God is after all of you. He died for all of you and he wants all of you. He doesn't want just one room in your heart. He wants the whole house. Just like these mailboxes, you don't just get one part that you give to God and everything else. Now, he wants all of you, church. And so when I think about this comprehensive Christianity, I think about this. Who here has gotten stuck in the rain in Florida, just caught in the rain? No, not very many. Okay, I'm from Colorado, so maybe it's just me and I need to pay attention to my weather app, but just pretend with me that you've been there too. You get caught in the rain, right? Beautiful day, it's gorgeous outside, next thing you know, downpour, total downpour. It's crazy, crazy Florida weather, right? Downpour. Well, tell me about this. Does part of you get wet or does all of you get wet? When God pours out his abundant love on us, not part of us is changed, all of us is changed. We become drenched in the love of God because he wants all of us. No room for partial Christianity, no room for compartmentalized but comprehensive. Because you see, compartmentalized Christianity says, I'm just about Sunday. Comprehensive Christianity says it's about every day. Compartmentalized Christianity says I'm just gonna sit in a row and that's it. Comprehensive Christianity says I'm gonna not just be in a row, I'm gonna be in a circle, I'm gonna engage in community and live like the Acts 2 church. Compartmentalized Christianity says I'm gonna be served. Comprehensive Christianity says I'm gonna serve because the Son of Man came to seek and to save and to serve. Compartmentalized Christianity says Jesus revolves around me. Comprehensive Christianity says I revolve around Jesus. It is all about him because he gave all of himself for me. So how are you living in that comprehensive Christianity church? First off, if you don't know this Jesus, we can make that right right now. We wanna invite you to know him. In a few minutes, we're gonna invite our elders and deacons and their wives, our elders and wives to come on forward and we wanna encourage you, come on up and accept this Jesus as your Lord and as your Savior. Receive him. You've been justified as a follower of Jesus that changes everything. Embrace that, accept that gift. So we really wanna encourage you, come forward and come to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Maybe you've already done that. We wanna encourage you, Get baptized. On first Thursday, right there, get dunked. Go public with your faith. Join Discover Calvary. You've seen that in the announcements. Look, get serious about being a part of the church body. Join that Calvary group. Grow in that circle. We don't just grow in a row. Grow in a circle. And then join a serve team. Be a part of what's going on here in the body of Christ. Serve, the Son of Man came to seek, to save, to serve. Let's serve but let's be serious about what God wants to do. So as you walk out of here today, my encouragement to you, I'm talking to you personally, is what is God doing in your life? How can we take one step closer to him of this comprehensive Christianity? What's going on, what's happening? How do you walk out of here a little more changed than when you walked in? Because God's love has been poured into us and it just flows right back out. We get to love him, we get to love others. So church, may you remember that you've been justified and that changes everything. That you have peace with God, you have access to his grace to stand in, you have rejoicing confidence in the future, and you have confidence in your present suffering, and you have relationship with the God of the universe. Everything has changed, there's so much more.